Welcome back for another episode of Sling House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is Ali Malinenko. She is the author of Ghost Girl and the Bram Stoker finalist, This Appearing House. Her first novel for adults, The Other March Sisters, as well as her third middle grade book, Broken Dolls, will be published in 2025. She currently lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you, um, not <laughs> just because of how amazing your books are, um, but just because I, I feel like I've been excited to talk to you about middle grade horror, you know, for, for quite some time. Absolutely. Let's do it. So, um, yeah, some of my listeners may not be aware of some of your work. So um, as we just kind of jump into a conversation about middle grade horror, um, what are some of the things that you've written and, you know, kind of like, where do you come from in terms of middle grade horror? Um, so like, uh, like you said, um, I wrote Ghost Girl and Disappearing House, and I have a third Broken Dolls book coming out. Um, they're all middle grade horror books, which I think is a really important genre um, in that age level, especially um, because I think we do a lot of gatekeeping. Um, I think middle grade horror is a space where we can talk about really hard things in a, I don't want to say fun way, but like in an entertaining way, <laughs> you know, we can deal with some, you know, hard topics, which, you know, they do in contemporary, contemporary middle grade too. And so this is like no discredit to that, but for fans of genre who don't want just sad books, you can write about sad things in a scary story. I love the idea that horror is just like all sad things. <laughs> <laughs> really, a lot of horror is sad things, you know? You're totally right. Um, and I, as someone who has struggled with sad feelings for pretty much his entire life, I think it's so necessary to have conversations about sad things, but it doesn't always have to be sad. I, I struggle a lot with a lot of literary fiction because I feel like it forgets sometimes that it can just be fun. <laughs> you can, yes. You can actually, you know, still deal and grapple with heavy things without losing sight of the joy in human experience too. Yes, which is, I think, also very important when you're writing for kids because they're still going to want that adventure story, you know, within while also experiencing what it's like to sort through their complicated feelings that they don't always have the language to talk about, which is where books come in handy. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. So what draws you to writing middle grade, you know, as opposed to writing some other, you know, grade level? So when I first, so I first started out writing poetry, and then um, the very first piece of like fiction that I worked on for a very long time was a middle grade book. I spent like seven years writing and rewriting this book and it got me an agent and it died on submission and I was broken. Um, every publisher in the known universe was like, no, thank you. And they were all like, you're a great writer, but no, thank you. And I get up to write at 445 in the morning, every morning. Oh my and gosh. <laughs> yeah, I do. I write before I go to my my day job. So I'm up very early in the morning. And after the entire publishing industry rejected my book, I was 
you know, probably weeping on the floor at 4.45 in the morning. But I had this moment where I was like, okay, you know, either I find something new or I, I just accept that I, I don't have the chops and I can't. And I didn't want to give up because I did believe in myself. And so I was like, okay, what were the books that mattered the most to you when you were growing up? And middle grade horror was immediately the first thing I thought of. And I was like, that's where your heart is. That's what you're going to write. And I sat down and I wrote Ghost Girl in like six months and we sold it very quickly. You know, it's just, I think it just took me, I mean, I'm not sorry for the time I spent on the, on the young adult book because it really taught me how I want to tell a story as opposed to what I, what I did when I first started writing, which was like mimic the way other people tell stories. So, I mean, it was useful, but it, I, it did like, as soon as I really sat down and was like, what matters to you? Like what books have always mattered to you? It was without a question, middle grade horror. Oh, I love that. So what were some of the books that you're, you know, you're talking about that really mattered to you and kind of shaped you as a, both as a reader and as a writer? I think probably the biggest one for me was um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I snuck out of my school library because I was gonna I was gonna check it out of the yeah I was gonna check it out of my public school library and my mom took one look at it it was like absolutely not because I was very prone to having nightmares so she was not wrong she was like absolutely not but I really wanted to read it like so I would sneak read it in my school library like I wouldn't even check it out there because I was afraid she'd still find out that I was reading this book she told me not to read I would just pull it off the shelf and like read like a story and put it back. Um, I think that was probably the biggest one. And then when I finally, you know, when I got older, I bought Poppy, have like the t-shirt. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> I I had a very similar experience growing up. Um, my parents were very restrictive about what I read. And for good reason, I, I want to have a conversation about that because mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I feel like we're in a, a moment, especially where that seems to be happening all over. Yes. But, you know, my parents were, were just concerned about, you know, like the quality of, of story that I was really ingesting. Um, they worried about, you know, kind of the messaging in those books and what I might uncover and whether or not that was going to be appropriate for my age. So uh, Goosebumps was huge when I was growing up. You know, it was, mm -hmm. uh, I, I grew up through the 90s and there was just this, everything, everything was Goosebumps. But my parents wouldn't let me read them. And so I would sneak into the library and, you know, under cover of nobody watching, I would sneak in and and like look at those covers and and get real sweaty and, you know, like, you know, read a couple of chapters here and there. It was really fun. Yeah. So we're kind of in a, a, the middle of a moment with middle grade horror where it seems like the industry is not really giving it its space or its due. And I, I kind of wanted to open up a soapbox for you just a little bit to talk about <laughs> kind of the state of middle grade horror and, you know, like middle grade fiction in general um, and, and kind of what's, what's happening there and what your feelings are about it. Sure. So for me, it, it's a very we're in a very weird place right now because on one hand, you know, I know when my agent takes my books out um, for submission, it's like everybody claims to want middle grade horror. Like everyone, like this is a hot 
button. And and then when I was at um, Stoker, when we were there, and I was speaking with Paul Tremblay and Zoja Stage, who have only ever written adult, and they were both working on a middle grade book. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, and we recently got the category and the Stoker. So I was like, oh, things are good, but they're really not good. <laughs> like it looks like they're good, but challenges in school districts are way up. Barnes and Noble has stopped discoverability. They they only stock titles from like the bestsellers list for middle grade. They don't stock new authors. They don't stock debut books. And that is really hard because if if it's not there, people don't know to ask for it. You know, and discoverability mm. is so much of how kids find books. Um, honestly, I think at this moment, if it weren't, I, I think it's librarians are doing an incredible amount of work mm. um, to get books into kids' hands. I mean, they always have, but it with these challenges, it's just it's really hard. Like my 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 book, This Appearing House, was challenged. So, which made no sense. Like I was like, what could they possibly be challenging about this book? And it was because it, the, 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 the quote from the challenge was that it depicts a depressing view of life and it discusses too much about death. And I'm like, why are we afraid to talk to kids about death? Like, it's a thing that happens to everyone. It's a thing they will experience. It's a thing they could possibly have already experienced and need a place to sort out their feelings. Like, why do we just want to bury that? I don't, I don't understand it. But so, yeah, so middle grade's in a really, like, difficult place right now um like i said i feel like the publishing industry claims to really want it but like the the book selling industry doesn't seem to have that much interest in it um mm. so yeah it's it's not great <laughs> yeah, yeah i i've been thinking about this a lot too um not just in in terms of the challenges which i do want to i want to dig into that um with you but but discoverability too um i've found as a, a reader of middle grade horror it is harder and harder for me to stay up to date with what is even out there or coming out um i had laura parnham on the show not too long ago and she's a debut middle grade horror writer um her book came out over the summer and I still have yet to see that book in any of my local bookstores. And yeah. I've I've had to kind of go to, I know my indie bookstore will usually be like, you know, if, if you can make a case for it, we probably might represent it. But even then, you know, margins are so slim on a lot of those indie bookstores that it's like taking a chance on a book is really tough unless they really know their readership. And then that's coupled with like this weird corporate idea from like a Barnes and Noble where it's like, we're just not going to bother with debut authors. We're not going to bother with a lot of new fiction. So even stuff from established authors like Delilah Dawson, she had camp scare come out this summer, nowhere to be found. Can't find that at all. I couldn't find for the longest time, any of Daniel Krause's uh, middle grade stuff that has been coming. He's got, I think two in that series now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah, the, the, the third one just won the uh stoker my gosh it's it's yeah and you, it, they're not on the shelves yeah it's, it's insane to me to to think about how much good fiction there is out there that we just can't find because you know so much of our reading space has already been eaten up by just one you know retailer um mm -hmm. which is barnes and noble and in a lot of towns if you're a young reader 
Barnes and Noble is it. And yeah. and you might be lucky to have a Barnes and Noble within 60 miles of you. That's true too. Yeah. And and so when they don't support debut authors, they don't debut authors don't get read. They don't wind up in front of readers. They don't wind up in front of librarians. It just you just fall into the void. Yeah. And it's it's damaging. It's it's very damaging. And it's not just like I'm not just saying this like oh well you know because because sales, but it's it it's effective. The effect that it can have is that your publisher will take a look at how you're doing, and because of that, could also choose not to publish with you anymore. Well, you know, it can really shut down a whole career. Yeah, let's let's talk too about the importance of representation, right? Mm -hmm. In in discoverability, because I think that this is a more complex problem than just, oh, well, your books aren't in a store. Whether you're an established author or not, discovering your books is an important financial uh, uh, position. You know, like you, you need to be able to pay your bills. You want to do that with your books. But I think too, like a lack of representation of certain voices or when we give power over to, you know, a corporation to determine who is going to end up on a bookshelf and who is not, right? There's a chance, I think, for a lot of people to not be represented in the mm -hmm. kind of books that we see. I mean, that's a huge problem. So I I kind of want to pitch to you again, like how do we work around this discoverability issue? You know, how do we as readers find the books that we hope to be reading and putting in front of our kids? I, that's a that's a great question. Um, I would definitely rely more on libraries than on bookstores for discoverability because I do feel like librarians are very aware of what is happening and this is how they combat it. And they also, you know, librarians go through trade magazines so they're alerted to titles that the general public would only see if places like Barnes and Noble were putting out their book. So I do feel like you will find a better selection, especially for debut authors. You know, if you're looking for new people's books, finding them in a library. But honestly, I mean, even even the loss of like what book Twitter used to be and mm. what it isn't anymore. Like that was a great resource for a long time for finding like connecting with authors and finding their books. And it's just completely fallen apart, you know, mm. and then nothing has really popped up to support it. So I don't I mean, outside of your local library, there isn't there isn't a lot of options, I hate to say. I wish I had better news. Oh, yeah. No, I I I feel you. Um gosh, the 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 decomposition of of Twitter has just Oh yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, been a a really terrible problem to try to solve. Yeah. I mean, I I had a great community there and mm. it's pretty much non-existent and it makes me sad cuz I miss those people and like I don't know how to find out what they're working on or like, mm. like to keep an eye out for when their books come out. It's like I'm, I'm just like, well, I hope, I hope I see them, you know? So, yeah. So uh, the other side of this kind of growing issue, right, is the issue of challenges, um, specifically in a lot of libraries, both public libraries and school libraries. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of attention is given over to the school library issue, especially right now, a lot of I think right-leaning pundits, frankly, are using mm -hmm. this defense of it's about the kids. We got to protect our kids. Yeah, which is which is funny considering 
you're not protecting your kids by taking stories away from them, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it Yes. Oh gosh, we can get down that road in a, in a moment, but you know, I, th I think scary, more scary to me is the fact that it's not just occurring in school libraries. It's also occurring in public libraries. Um, I've seen here in, in my, just in my backyard, um, we live in Northwest Arkansas, which in terms of Arkansas is actually pretty progressive. And yet just down the road in Madison County, the uh, public library in Van Buren uh, has has seen multiple challenges for books to remove books from circulation or to remove books from displays that might be discoverable by uh, school age kids. Mm -hmm. And the, a lot of that movement has come from some pretty singular voices, right? We have a board down there that the public library board um, was just stacked with a couple of members who are really diligent about listening to certain conservative voices in news who mm -hmm. will send out, you know, kind of these big lists of like, these are books that you shouldn't have in front of kids. You know, they're doing a lot of that in Texas as well, which is where your book has been challenged. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to open up some conversation about, you know, really what is going on here? <laughs> Why, should we be concerned about these challenges and you know kind of what what is the concern with these challenges from a parent perspective and how can we maybe start to to work against or counteract a lot of this misinformation about what these books are and what they represent um well i know that a lot of the challenges tend to come um if there's any clear representation whatsoever in your book um I have a line, a singular line in Ghost Girl. <laughs> One individual line. I know exactly the line you're talking <laughs> where about. Where Z says that she doesn't know if she likes boys or girls. Like she hasn't made the she hasn't committed to like whether or not she's made a decision on that. And that, that is literally the line. Z didn't know if she liked boys or girls. And I've had that pointed out in reviews that this book needs to be labeled, that it's a queer book. So it can be like so people can avoid it. And I'm like, it's it's one line. It's one line. And it, if that is enough to trigger someone feeling that my book is inappropriate, what are what are queer kids supposed to do? You know, yeah. like where how are they supposed to find stories about people that sound and feel the way that they do, which they have every right to have? Like everyone should see themselves represented in a book somewhere, somehow. And <clears throat> like to I mean, removing those things, like these these challenges, like it's it's extremely superficial because it's not no one is putting graphic sex in a middle grade book. No one is doing that. <laughs> but even the idea that a kid in a book would, you know, just think in general about maybe like how they want to dress or like if they it, I mean, it doesn't even have to be as far as like they have a crush on someone or has feelings for someone. It's just like, oh, maybe he wants to wear a skirt, even like that's that's unacceptable. Um, and it just it's it's just really heartbreaking um because these these kids deserve so much better. Yeah. I I think oh gosh, I have so many thoughts about this and and so much I want to to kind of dive into. I think on a 
if I were to to approach this conversation as I have with some of the people that I know or are kind of in my orbit, uh, even some of my own family members, mm-hmm. I, I want to take this argument about discoverability in libraries and and challenges in the libraries in in a good faith argument which is to assume that there really are parents out there who are concerned about what values are being conveyed in these stories and how that can affect a student's development and i think that if we have that good faith argument you know, we, we kind of have to look at some of the representation of like, what is in a middle grade book? You know, mm-hmm. what what, do we, what are we talking about when we talk about middle grade? What do we talk about when we're talking about putting books in front of kids? And is it or is it not ridiculous, right, to challenge certain books based on what's in the book? So I wanted to look with you kind of a, a deep dive into Ghost Girl. Okay. Because you are... Uh, an, an an expert as a published author in middle grade. I feel like you know what industry trends are and you can certainly speak to what is specifically in your book um, and, and why these good faith conversations really start to fall apart when we actually look at the books being questioned. So good. Um, yeah, so let's kick things off. What is Ghost Girl about? So Ghost Girl is the story um, about a girl named Z Puckett and her best friend Elijah and her bully-turned-buddy uh, Nellie. And what happens in the story is that um, a creepy new principal comes to town who has the ability to manifest everyone's deepest dreams and wishes. And when he does that, he sort of like vampirically sort of siphons their will out of them. Um, and at the same time that he appears, Z discovers that she can see ghosts. And she teams up with her friends to try and figure out what Principal Scratch is doing, why he's doing it, and how they're going to save their families. I, I love this book. And I think that in order to have the kind of conversation that I want to have about this book, I, I if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of go full spoiler. Um, That's fine with me, yeah. So if, if you're a listener and you're like, oh, I haven't read Ghost Girl yet. I don't want it spoiled for me. Uh, maybe, you know, cut back around. This, <laughs> this podcast is absolutely going to be here for a while. But I think I'm really speaking more to the listeners in my audience who I know are parents and I know have these concerns. So let's first talk about um, representation, because I, I think that's where I would like to start. Who are the characters in Ghost Girl and what are some of the political or social or cultural dynamics that they represent in this story? Okay, so Z is a 12-year-old white girl whose mother has died, who she never knew because her mother died shortly after childbirth. Um, Her father is away, and she has a sister who's 10 years older than her that takes care of her. Her father's out looking. I'm trying to remember if he... He's out looking for work. I think he was a truck driver. I can't remember my own book. <laughs> anyway, the point is, he's not, he's not like a major factor in the story. She very much is raised by her older sister, Abby, and they're very close. And Elijah is a 12-year-old black boy, and his mother suffers from mental health issues. And it is 
something that is not really discussed in his family, which leads to some anxiety. Um, and he is bullied by his father because of his size, which I, was very important to me to talk about because while I know that kids bullying kids gets a lot of space in books, I don't think you often see parents bullying kids getting as much space and it does happen. So I, that was very important to me. And then Nellie is um, also a 12 year old white girl who is from a very wealthy family, um, but a very, a family that doesn't express love. And that aspect of it is something that Z has to confront because she's, she's, she considers Nellie to be her bully and Nellie considers Z to be her bully um, because they both give each other such a hard time. And Z always believed that Nellie had a perfect life because she's money. And one of the points in the story is her realizing that she has love and that that is something that, you know, money can't buy, so to speak. So right off the bat, the things that stand out to me are that we have representation of a non-traditional family structure. Mm -hmm. We have forms of bullying. We have kind of the psychological damage of, uh, bad parenting or, or mm -hmm. you know, parents who, um, you know, are, are expecting something of kids that kids are not. Uh, and, you know, kind of some pressures of, of conformity and the importance of having empathy toward mm -hmm. the people around you. I feel like that's a better assessment than I could have put together. <laughs> so <laughs> you're doing great. <laughs> I mean, I, I look at all of these things and I think about the importance of 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 all of this representation first off if you come from a non-traditional family structure and every story you read is about a traditional family that you mm -hmm. don't fit into what is the psychological effect on you as you grow up so the reason so because growing up um now i i, I was raised by, by by a mom and a dad i wasn't raised by my sister but growing up um, we went through a lot of economic hardship and I recall reading books where kids just get things all the time mm -hmm. from their parents. And like, there's always a full refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading those things and just being like, huh, like there, this, this is what the real world is. And I'm not a part of that. And it, it felt extremely alienating. Um, and it was really important to me that I told stories about people, families that had struggles, you know, families that had struggles with mental health, families that had struggles with, with um, being able to, you know, cover all the bills, like the things that really, really happened. Because a lot of the books when I was growing up never addressed those things. And it was like, it pretended that kids didn't feel the effect of them. You know, I think mm -hmm. that like, I think we do that a lot. I think we, adults, like to believe that they can hide things about life from their kids because it's just too hard to deal with. And we really can't. And I just really believe that talking about it, regardless of how hard it is, is always going to be the better choice than pretending it's not real. Um, because like I said, you know, I read those books and felt like, oh, this is what normal families are like. And my, m so my family is not normal. Like, you know, and I didn't want, I didn't want a kid to feel that way. I wanted a kid who read this, who, who like maybe has a parent that struggles with mental health, 
to understand, you know, to connect with Elijah on that level mm -hmm. and see themselves and see their struggles represented and just know that they're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is really important to me too. Um, I, my, my parents provided for me and my, my siblings very well. Um, I'm not going to criticize them, you know, in terms of them doing their best, uh, because as I've had many conversations with my parents over the years, um, they, they had to make a lot of choices and making choices in parenthood is so hard. <laughs> you know, you think about how difficult life is to maneuver just for you, you know, mm -hmm. now add extra stressors on top of that. And not everyone is very well equipped for it. Yeah. But I, you know, I grew up in like always having a house, like always having a roof over my head at, at, at the very minimum, having a roof over my head. Um, I never had to miss meals for sure. Uh, but I had to go without a lot of other comforts um, from time to time. I grew up uh, for a short period of time in a trailer home um, mm -hmm. or or a mobile home unit. Uh, and I remember living in that community and trying to make friends in that community. And the way that their lives were so very much different from even my life. And, and my parents have been together, you know, for for forever they they they're still together you know mm -hmm. i didn't have to work through divorce or i you know a, a non-traditional family structure in that way so i know how difficult it was for me growing up reflecting on those memories and reflecting on the, the kind of life that i had and i also compare that to so much of media's representation of a family as living in this big house in the suburbs having mm -hmm. multiple cars having you know, breakfast on the table as you're running off to school or whatever. And that was not always my experience. So this representation is extraordinarily important, I feel, in two ways. One, seeing some of my feelings reflected in stories um, that, that represent, you know, these kind of like economic hardships. And also in reflecting on the way that I have not lived, you know, I still have both of my parents. And I know that that is a very different experience from someone who maybe lost their kids or, or their parents, you know, really young. Um, my wife uh, just lost her father last year. And going through that cycle of grief has been devastating just as an adult, you know, let alone yeah. as a kid. As a kid. So, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that I feel like this representation matters all the more because um, feeling a, a sense of place, feeling a sense of perhaps not normalcy, but a sense of, of being reflected in the media that you consume is mm -hmm. ultra important, especially as a kid, as you are trying to construct identity and figure out who you are. Yes. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons that something like Sesame Street was so groundbreaking mm. because it was the first time city kids got to see their neighborhood and kids like them sitting out on the stoop, you know, and like playing in the site in the street, like because so much representation is like you said, you know, mom and dad in the big house in the suburbs. And I just think that like and I think that like for for writers, I think it's important 
for you to remember what kind of representation you needed as a kid, like mm. what your experience was, and to put that into the world. Because there are kids out there that are going through the same thing you were going through, and you can be the voice for them that you didn't have. And I think that's really important. And it's like, also, it for me at least, it makes storytelling so much more meaningful. You know, like, I just mm. feel like you write a better book when you when you have good representation, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you have to be really careful with that too, though, because not all stories are yours to tell, Yeah, you know? Like, so you have to, you have to be mindful of that. Um, but I do, I do think that like, if you can reach back into your own life and look at the things that you struggled with and that made you feel alienated as a kid and write about them, I do think that that's always a good thing to do. Yeah. So you said something that I think is really, really important and transitions to my next talking point, which is that adults like to believe that we can hide things from kids. And I want to talk about some of the heavier elements of what's in Ghost Girl, because it is a book that in terms of, of uh, not just its representation of like the kinds of lives that kids leave, you're also representing some really heavy topics like uh you know grief for example so what are some of the things with this the kinds of issues that you explore in ghost girl so grief is a big um kind of constant in ghost girl and i'm starting to notice in like everything i write it's <laughs> <laughs> um, like this appearing house is also very much about that my current book is very much about that but anyway um Sorting through some things, some things, Allie. But, uh, <laughs> so Z is dealing with, and it's a very particular kind of grief um, that she talks about when, she, when she, she talks about her mother because she, she doesn't know what to miss. She doesn't have anything to miss. Like she doesn't know what the sound of her mother's voice was. She would never have heard her say her name. And mm. it's that that kind of grief specifically that I wanted to talk about with with ghost girl um because i think it's the kind of grief that you do that other people don't always get to see you know when mm -hmm. when a loss happens you know and there's a funeral and you know that whole like everyone comes over and there's a whole event that takes place but when that event ends your grief doesn't go anywhere and if you don't even get to participate in that event then you didn't even get that small amount of like you know letting some of it out I think it's important to talk about these things. You know, like I, I said earlier, you know, Elijah's dealing with, uh, you know, his mother's mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to make, you know, for me, like that, I, I didn't have a parent that had mental health issues, but I have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that that kids who are around adults who struggle see that that happens and that it's okay, even if it can be scary, you know, and that, you know, it, 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 it gets discussed, which is why that is Elijah's journey, is that finally, you know, we're not going to pretend this thing isn't happening when it's happening. Gosh, I, I think of my own experience as a reader uh, and growing up and the things that, gosh, I had to deal with um, mentally that, that I, I just wasn't prepared for. I didn't know how to work through it, you know. I've 
struggled with depression my whole life almost it feels um i only just found out a few months ago that i have autism um mm-hmm. as many people who have autism know you don't necessarily know that you have it but you have it your whole life right it's not mm-hmm. just a thing that just like crops up and it's uh, oh suddenly i'm autistic now right um and i think a lot of a lot of my mental health journey has been influenced by the fact that I have autism, but have never been able to communicate my experience with it, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I've dealt with depression a lot. I've dealt with uh, feelings of inadequacy. I've, I've dealt with um, a kind of listlessness, you know, through Mm -hmm. my whole life of trying to make sense of my experiences and and put them together. And I, I think the, first time I encountered a book that truly spoke to like my mental health journey was Catcher in the Rye, uh, because that was the first book I had ever read that dealt with real, you know, kind of teenage angst and, and also mental health issues. Um, I identified so much with that character and the way that he felt about the world, because that character finally spoke with a voice I could identify Mm-hmm. And and I bring that up because I think I look at a book like Ghost Girl and I wish I had it in my arsenal when I was growing up and dealing with these issues. Well, I that's wish, very kind. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I truly, I wish that I had, I wish I had your book and I wish I had Laura Senth's books um, growing up because they both deal, I think, with these issues of anxiety and these issues of of, um, you know, <laughs> mental health unwellness and mm-hmm. trying to work through those issues. I think too, trying to live up to your parents' expectations of you, which is super difficult as a kid. Yeah. I, I have, to, I, I adore Laura's books. Um, and you know, she, she actually has a moment in the clackety where Evie, her main character, like considers like not existing anymore it's the closest i've ever seen suicidal ideation in a middle grade book and i was blown away when i saw it and i thought it was so important and so good that it was in there because kids think about death (laughs) like (laughs) i'm pretending they don't (laughs) they they do they absolutely do i i don't know again returning to this idea of the conversation with parents right what are Mm -hmm. what are we putting in front of your kids and and what are the discussions that we're having? I think that so often it's exactly like you say, adults like to believe that we can hide things from kids. But the reality is, is that they're so much more perceptive of the world than Mm -hmm. you think. And if you think that you know, these books might be harmful or something like that. Like, what do you think they're, they're discovering through the other media that they're, they're ingesting? What do you think they're learning from YouTube? What do you think they're learning from TikTok? And I don't say this to be alarmist, but I do mean to say like, we live in a very sociopolitical world. You know, our culture is rife with meaning and significance and it would be naive to believe that you can control everything or that kids aren't going to find 
out or work their way into these feelings through their own lived experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too, like whenever I talk to people about this and cause I'm often like asked like, oh, what can't you put in a middle grade book or like what's too far? And I'm like, nothing's too far. Like no- nothing's too far. You can put in whatever you want. But like, I think the thing that may, like what you have to do is, is bring them back out into the light by the end of the book. Like, I think that for me, that's a really important part of middle grade is that you can get very dark. And I think, you know, talking about, I mean, look at the world they're living in. There's a pandemic, there's climate change. Like pretending that they don't see these things and don't experience these things is just extremely naive of adults. And I understand if we don't always want to talk about it, but then like, let the book do that, you know, Mm. let the book talk about it so that they still get that. Like, I just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I love about Ghost Girl um, is this recurring message throughout the book about the power of words. Mm -hmm. Uh, It ties in a lot with the idea of, of kind of the bullying uh, theme or the bullying topic uh, because Z is bullied uh, and then she kind of learns more about her bully's life and understands that, you know, there are different kinds of bullying. There are different mm-hmm. forms that it can take. And it doesn't always just have to be like mean words. You know, it can also be about the assumptions that we make of someone else's life and how we treat what we believe they should act as and and the way that they actually are, you know, the way they actually live. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this recurring, you know, pattern, this recurring message, words have power, words have power, not just the, the things that you say to one another have power, but also the ideas we put in our head have power. Mm -hmm. So as a kind of meta reflection, a little bit of, of literature, what were some of the things that you were trying to explore, you know, through that motif? Um, well, I mean, that's just a thing that I, I believe in like deeply that words have power. I, I'm I'm a big believer in the power of storytelling. I think that it is an intrinsic part of what makes us human. For me, I, I wanted I wanted Z to understand that like words having power is a tool. And it's a tool that she can use. And it becomes a tool that she literally uses at the end of the book to, you know, that they they use to save themselves. Um, and yeah, I just, I think that, I think it just ties back into this, this notion, like I said before, about like what storytelling, what it does, why we do it, you know, what it, what it means to us as a society. You know, like I said, I think it was, it was important to me to have Z understand that it's, it's a tool and that, that words, words matter and your intention behind them matters. And you, that that is that is a good thing, but is a thing you have to, you know, use carefully. Yeah. And I really like what you said about like the bullying that takes place where you're just making assumptions about who someone is, because that's exactly what Z does. Because Nellie has fancy clothes, she decides that she's a rich snobby person and doesn't consider that you know her economic situation is not in her control either, just like Z's isn't, mm-hmm. and that you know. It, it it doesn't actually make a difference. So you bring up this idea of, you know, words being a tool. Um, and I, I think this is one of the 
feelings I have about literature too. So returning back to that concept of uh, the good faith argument, right, against these people who are challenging these books all over the place, you know, in what way is your book a tool um, for navigating some of these ideas? Well, I think, I think because there are some like big, like you said, you know, big topics in here, I, I like to believe that it can be a gateway to conversations about those things. Um, I, I'm a big believer in people, in, in parents co-reading books with their kids um, so that it can be like a little book club and a conversation starter. Um, and I would like to think that if people did that with Ghost Girl, then, you know, topics like mental health would have an easy route of coming up in conversation and and being dealt with. Um, I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I think that you know I think that it's it's hard to just initiate a conversation about death or grief mm. without context, even if you need it's something you need to talk about because maybe it's something that's happening, you know. And I think that that books are really 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 super useful in that arena. Mm. I, I agree. Um, so this is a, maybe a, an autism thing for me, but you know, I, I find that reading other people's emotions are so difficult mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and really trying to understand them sometimes is, is really difficult because that's the area of my life that's most difficult for me with my disability. So I think of the power of literature in kind of allegorizing that experience for me, in helping me step into someone else's life, someone mm -hmm. else's experience, experiencing what they go through through their perspective is, I mean, massively helpful in helping me understand how to interact with other people and how to understand some of these heavy topics myself. You know, I've had plenty of people die around me in my life. Um, and yet I, I manage that a lot differently than I think other people do. And, and having to kind of come to an understanding that all of this stuff affects people in different ways. You know, that's mm -hmm. kind of the beauty of human experience, but it's also the difficulty of navigating, you know, all of our life stuff. Um, I think just even that fundamental recognition of everybody's going through their own stuff yeah. <laughs> and you can't make assumptions about how they are handling it is groundbreaking in <laughs> building community, you know? Yeah. So I, we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like only talking about the heavy stuff in Ghost Girl is a misrepresentation too of the way that I think Ghost Girl can still be very fun and can still be really engaging. So you know, what are some of the elements that you're most proud of in this story as it, you know, kind of presents an engaging story for kids? I think my my favorite scene and it's why I'm so glad it was the one that um my illustrator chose for the cover is um the eyes on the trees in the woods it's very much a friendship story you know it's 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 about the power of friendship it's about standing up for your friends which was really important to me too um but i think you know principal scratch was a delight to write he was 
he, in the original original story, it was he was not a principal. He was a preacher. Um, so oh, some people so have picked up on yes. Some people are like when I said that, they're like, oh my God. I'm like, yes, that's why he talks like that. Because <laughs> I I you know, I I wanted I obviously I wanted him to be a preacher. That's why I wrote it that way. Um, but my editor was like, no, let's not bring religion into this. Can you make him <laughs> something else? And I was like, okay, sure, he'll be the principal then. So um, but he still like kept a lot of that that vibe from the original. Um but yeah, it's just um I think it's a I think it's a fun adventure story. I I mean the reactions that I've had from kids who have read it, that is their takeaway. Like very few of the kids have acknowledged the mental health issues or the grief issues and it was just a fun ghost story with like a creepy bad guy, you know, which was which is the whole point. I want them to have fun with it. Yeah. Um I just also know that like I said, you know, when you can you can talk about things that are difficult, you know, take that opportunity and just slip it in there, you know, for, 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 for future knowledge. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it was, it was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I had a blast with it. Um, I absolutely adore this book. I, I love it. I also will just slip in. I love um, what I've read of this appearing house. I haven't finished it yet, um, but it it's also, you know, beat for beat as, as good, as engaging as uh, Ghost Girl has been. Oh, that's um, great. Oh yeah. No, you're, I, you're knocking it out of, out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Thank um, you. These are phenomenal books. I, I also, I, I love what you say about you know, like co-reading with your kids. If if you're a, a, a parent and you really are concerned about what your kid might be reading or something like that, um, just reach reach out to your kid, have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, my my mother did that with me with everything. You know, we would we would talk about a Spider Man movie, or we would talk about you know a, a comic book that I was really into my mother was always there to have conversations with me about some of the stuff that I was really passionate about. Um, and I, I love her for that. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like that's an aspect of, of parenting that maybe you miss. It's like you can build relationships with, with yeah. your kids. Yeah. And like, it also just it like, again, it gives an opportunity for if there is, you know, a hard thing, a hard topic that comes up to be like, Oh, you know, Hey, what did you think about that? And like, is that something you wanted to talk about? Or, you know, just to see where they're at, you know, in because mm. without like feeling like you're interrogating them, like, it's just, it's a perfect opportunity to have a conversation, <laughs> read with your kids. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, and, and hopefully if you are doing that, you know, you'll see how, stupid these challenges are i mean honestly yeah. I, I can't think of anything that is actually worse for your kid than taking books away taking that, books that, away yep that help you have the conversations that you want to have with your kid yep. Yep. Yeah. for the listeners who maybe are thinking like well what can i do how can i help promote uh middle grade fiction how can i help support my middle grade authors you know, and how can I help my kid find more books? What would you suggest for them? Well, like I said, I definitely would utilize the library when in terms of finding new books over 
over the bookstores because um, librarians are doing that that work. And you know, I, I mean, it's 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 little things like if you if you read something that you liked, like leave a one line review, you know, like anywhere, literally Goodreads, Amazon, and anywhere. Um, tell other people about it, you know, talk to your kids about it, have them talk to their friends about it. Like just so much is, so much of this is word of mouth, you know, um, that's how kids discover books. So, you know, I think it's just a matter of if you read something that you enjoy, you know, pass it along for sure and let other people know. So where can people find more of your work and more news about your upcoming projects? Um, so I'm probably the last person in the world that still has a blog, <laughs> <laughs> which I update infrequently. <laughs> um, so mostly social media is probably the best place to find out. I'm on um, Instagram and, and Twitter for as long as that exists. Um, and, and that handle is at Ali Malinenko. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm and oh, and web, my website is AliMalinenko.com, um, where I do infrequently update people about book stuff um yeah but it's gonna be you know i don't have anything coming out until 25 so i'm oh, doing all fair. the writing now <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for your books in 2025 by the way yeah i'm, so I'm, I'm really excited i'm, so I'm very excited, excited about this the broken dolls book um which i'm currently drafting so yeah wonderful yeah thank you so much for sharing your time with me on the show today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we got to have it. Trevor, thank you for your incredible questions and for like, you know, digging deep into like middle grade and, and the challenges and stuff. Cause I think this is such an important conversation that needs to be had. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime.